The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Good to see everyone this morning. Isaiah 61. We have, uh, for some, some time now, encourage you to have your Bibles open to text we read or preach. It's just so important uh, for you to see the Word of God with your own eyes and as you listen to it. We're reading uh, the text, especially from Isaiah, because often there's a lack of familiarity with them. And so we want to um, make sure we put this within context. So Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. To point unto them that mourn in Zion. To give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called oaks of righteousness the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. And they shall build the old wastes. They shall raise up the former desolations. And they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. And strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the aliens shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But ye shall be named the priests of the Lord. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. Ye shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory shall ye boast yourselves. For your shame ye shall have double, and for confusion they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore in their land they shall possess the double. Everlasting joy shall be unto them. For I, the Lord, love judgment." I hate robbery for burnt offering, and I will direct their work in truth, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And their seed shall be known among the Gentiles, and their offspring among the people, and all shall see them, shall acknowledge them, that they are the seed which the Lord hath blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. For as the earth bringeth forth her bud, and the gardens causeth things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all 
nations. The word of the Lord, and it is for our good. Now, Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would indeed be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. This will be my last sermon um, in this series, this Epiphany series, Songs of Rejoicing. I have some minor surgery this coming Thursday, and uh, Pastor Mike will conclude the series uh, next Sunday before we head to another part of Isaiah and the Lenten season, talk about the watchmen on the wall. But the sermon title for today, An Eternal Hootenanny, is one that uh, I want to spend a little time developing. Uh, a hootenanny, for all of you uh, non-hootenanny people, it's an old country word. Often when I um, talk to a certain age group of people, and I tell them I'm from Durkeytown, they'll say, oh, that's where the barn dances were. And if you just head down the road and the what is now the horse farm on the left, uh, what is it, H&H and, H and H or H&M, uh, in the barn that's there, the older barn in the back, that's where the barn dances were. And I meet some of these people who attended them, and they say, yeah, on a Saturday night we'd walk out and have a cigarette after dancing and look out and see the church. And I said, well, did you ever come on a Sunday? And then they give me that kind of look like they were trapped, like they knew they should have just kept their mouth shut. It's like a, when a guy sees me on the golf course and asks me what I do for a living, I tell him I'm a pastor, suddenly his game, his game goes downhill because now he's worried about what he's going to say or do. Well, a hootenanny is an old, English, or an old country word for a musical gathering. In today's lingo, we might think about an open mic night or uh, anybody hear karaoke? If you do, I'd love to come and watch you. Karen? Karen, did I see? No, no, you're... you're, you're you're a firm no on that. You're a firm no. Okay, there you go. Um, well, I, you know, as a kid, uh, I grew up with hootenannies in Chicago. That seemed like an odd place for a hootenanny. That's what I, I came to learn them to be. My parents uh, would gather regularly with friends uh, often on a Friday night, and uh, of course, my brother and sister and I along. Um, and the men would sit in the front of the room with their musical instruments, and they would play, and they would sing. The kids would be in the middle room getting in trouble and trying to stay out of trouble. The moms would be in the back room in the kitchen area, either making food or cleaning up food or talking and trying to make some sense of it all, I'm sure. Um, and, and usually, I mean, I don't have this firmly fixed at times, but you know, it would start after work in the early evening, maybe 6 or 7 o'clock, and they, they'd play well past midnight. And, you know, when I think about it, I, I, I think, like, I don't know how they did it, and I don't know how the neighbors put up with it. We're talking about in the city, in an apartment building, a second floor or third floor apartment building, windows open, amplification of all kinds of instruments, about 20 people crammed into this apartment, noise, 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 and laughter and joy and singing. Um, but, you know, it was the 60s and 70s. You had a lot more freedom back then, and uh, people weren't so uptight, and... Um, you know, the whole atmosphere was just joyous. It was just joyous. And you know, joy, being like fundamentally the nature of a hootenanny, 
is, is what Isaiah has locked into his mind as he has, has written these songs of rejoicing. That as Isaiah thinks about our glorious future with God, joy is foundational to what he sees. The song actually is found at the bottom of the passage. Uh, and actually, chapter 60 and 61 come together. I'm glad we sang, Arise, My Soul, Arise. It reminds us of where we were last week and, and this idea of rising, getting out of bed, waking up, turning our faces to the sun. The light has come. And then when you get to the end of 61, you see that there's just great rejoicing in the Lord. There is great rejoicing in the Lord. And when Isaiah writes his song, it begins with personal rejoicing. He says, I will rejoice in the Lord. My soul will be joyful in my God. And then as he ponders his joy and the joy that God has brought, it ends then with joy being experienced, Isaiah says, before all the nations. So this will not be a joy that only Israel has for them, but ultimately for the world, for all of the nations are going to experience this joy and this kind of mutual joy that is rooted in what God has done. Because Isaiah recognizes that it is God that has clothed him with the garments of salvation there in verse number 10, and that it is God that has covered him with the robe of righteousness. And then he, he uses a metaphor like as a bridegroom decking himself with ornaments or a bride adorning herself uh, with, with jewels. And so, so Isaiah recognizes that this is nothing that Israel can accomplish. It's nothing he can accomplish. This is what God has done for them. And this reference to joy is, is then illustrated, and you can kind of like let your imaginations get to work here, like one's wedding day, which I hope your wedding day was a, a, a joyous day, a day of great rejoicing. Robes decked, right? You, you, you put on your best, and, and the bride adorned with all of her jewels, and then Isaiah shifts the metaphor and he puts the metaphor into the natural world instead of the joy of a wedding. Um, Isaiah sees it as the earth bringing forth her bud and the garden causing things that are sown in it to spring forth. And so he draws in the natural world. And again, you know, we can with our minds imagine what this might be like and you put it together like a May or a June wedding when the bride and the bridegroom are just beautifully arranged and all of the flowers and it's a warm day and it's bright and sunny and the grass is green and the trees have leaves on them and everybody's happy except maybe, you know, the parents are having to write the checks, but mostly everybody's happy. It's joy. And this is how Isaiah understands what God has done for his people even though at this moment, they are heading into, into captivity. So there's this transvision that Isaiah again employs about what is and then what he knows is going, is going to come. And you know, when we, think about, when we think about the glorious future that awaits us, we need to let our imaginations soar. We need to have sanctified imaginations when we read the natural world. 
Willard and I were chatting briefly before the service, 10 or 11 days since we've had full sunlight. Just been gray, right, for almost two weeks. And then the sun burst forth. And when you saw the sun rising this morning, what did you think? Did you think to yourself like, oh, I'm so glad to see the sun? And this is kind of a trick question. Don't, I'm, I'm not trying to be you know, overly spiritual here. Or did, was there something in you that said, hey, Christ is rising, the risen Christ, seen in the rising of the sun? I know last Friday was Groundhog's Day, but it really wasn't. It was 40 days after the birth of Jesus when uh, his parents bring him to the temple to present the offerings. And you might remember the bookends that Luke gives us, that Zechariah, he, he sees the coming of Messiah into the world as light coming to the Gentiles. And Simeon, at the, at the end of the 40 days, right, he takes the baby Jesus and he sees it as light coming into the world. And you know, when we think about the increase of daylight, which we all need and will enjoy, it's wonderful. Let your mind soar into that natural world, into the greater truth of what God teaches us through the natural world, like Isaiah does, as his imagination soars with a, a wedding feast and with the beauty of the spring that has come into our lives. You know, join the poets and the writers and the architects and the painters and the hymn writers and kind of let your imagination soar when you think about the glorious future that awaits us. Say, like, our emotions have to be rooted into something, though. And so Isaiah tells us, you know, right, what his joy is rooted in. And that's at the top of the passage. Because the Spirit of the Lord is upon someone. Now, now this Isaiah is writing here about someone else. Isaiah is not writing a, a, a biography of himself. He's writing about someone else. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And the one that the Spirit of the Lord is upon is the one that he has written about. Isaiah has written about it from chapters number 40 to chapters number 55. The servant of the Lord. The Spirit is upon the servant of the Lord. And this is why we can dare to have sanctified imaginations. This is why we can hope in the midst of darkness and find joy that light has come because the work of God's grace that Isaiah points us to is done through the servant upon whom the Spirit of the Lord God rests. So we're not, we're not having our hope in Isaiah. We're not having our hope disconnected to the natural world or to the great experiences of life, our joy is rooted in the one upon whom the Spirit of the Lord is resting. The Spirit-filled man, the servant that Isaiah has told us about. And joy comes to us then because God did his work of bringing joy to the world through the life of the servant. And through the servant, a proclamation of joy is announced. This is what it says in verse number two, that he is proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, which will then unleash all kinds of blessings poured out upon the people of God. And that's really what verses two through nine are all about. The blessings of God being poured out 
because the spirit-filled servant has come to preach good tidings, to bind up the meek, to bind up the brokenhearted, and is proclaiming liberty, the opening of prisons to those that are bound, the acceptable year of the Lord. We've had a soft tire for a few weeks and finally got over to Warren Tire, and uh, they had it in there, up on the thing there, and they're trying to find out what's going on. And I'm sitting in the waiting room, and uh, the guy you know, behind the desk uh, calls the girl up because her car's done. She's a young girl. It sounded like the conversation wasn't at all prepared for an eight or $900 car repair. And he said, well, your bill's not, I think it was $800, your bill's not $800. Because every Christmas, a woman in our community comes in and gives us $500 and says, wait for the neediest person you can find and pay part of her car bill. So now your car bill's only $300. And she just began to cry. Liberty announced. Set free. Because of the kindness and grace of somebody else. And I just sat there and I thought, hey, I got a sermon illustration. (laughs) (laughs) For what it must be like. Right? To feel liberty for the captives. To hear the proclamation of the acceptable year of the Lord. And you know, both are important. If we're going to have full measures of joy, we must not only hear about the favorable year of the Lord, but we also must hear about the day of the vengeance of our God. Both are needed for joy to be received in its fullness. So we have to ask who is this spirit filled servant? That is announcing the jubilation and the judgment. And I know that we all probably have already fast forward. You already checked the box. You know the answer to the question. But please don't get there too quickly. Because I want to walk us through some. What I think are real problems in churches like ours. That have a certain level of knowledge and information. So I want you to go to Luke 4. Luke 4. And we'll spend the rest of our time here in Luke 4. Because this question is, is really important. Right? This question is really important. Who is, who is the servant? Who is the one that announces the jubilee and announces uh, the judgment? And if you go down uh, to verse number um, uh, 14... It's after the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. He's returned to Galilee. Fame is going about him. He's teaching in his synagogues. And then Jesus heads further north to the hometown, to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. Verse number 16 of Luke 4. And as his custom was, he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And as was customary in the synagogue, uh, he stands to read. And they give him uh, the book of the prophet Isaiah. And he opens the book and he finds the place where it is written. And he reads exactly uh, what we just read from Isaiah 61. He reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, sending me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are 
bruise to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, he closes the book. He gives it back to the minister. He sits down. And so we have to ask, who is the spirit-filled servant? Who is the one who takes the scroll and then, and then says, today, verse 21, this scripture fulfilled in your ears. This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. So you say, well, what does that mean? It means that Jesus identifies with and believes himself to be and is, in fact, the servant that Isaiah has written about, the one that the Spirit of the Lord is upon, the one that is announcing the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus is that servant, and he is not only the one who preaches the good tidings, but he is the one that is sent by God to bring about the good tidings that are preached. I am preaching good news this morning, but I am not the one through whom that good news has come. The girl at Warren Tire received good news. No one in that shop gave that money. She just heard the good news. We hear the good news, but we need to remember that the good news comes through the servant filled with the Spirit who not only proclaims the good news, but is the one through whom that news comes. And so then we have to ask, well, who then is Jesus of Nazareth? And, and you know, uh, the, the people in the synagogue that day, they give us a couple of options. In verse number... 20, that when Jesus closes the book, he sits it down, and all of the eyes are fastened on him, right? And then he says, this day the scripture is fulfilled in your ears, and then the people bear him witness. They begin to speak about him, and, and, and here's the options. They wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth, one, and then they said, is this not Joseph's son, two? And so you have to ask yourself, is the Jesus that you know someone who just speaks gracious words, the son of a carpenter, and is that really the way you experience and know and have Jesus in your life? And you might say, well, wouldn't that be an odd thing in a, in a congregation like ours? And I would say, no, not at all. That the experience that some people have with Jesus is simply that. And not much more. Every church needs good readers. Every church needs carpenters. Of course they love Jesus. Wow! Can you believe a carpenter's son can read so well? What a guy. Is that really who he is? Is that how far of a relationship you have with him? A good reader. Someone who can fix stuff. Is he only Joseph's son? 
Well, as, as this episode unfolds, what we find out is that the people very quickly understood that he wasn't just a good reader and wasn't just Joseph's son. Look at what happens in verse number 28. Now I'm going to just leave out this little middle section. We'll get back to it in just a moment. So they, the, the response of the congregation goes from good reader, son of Joseph, to now, from, instead of speaking gracious words, they are filled with wrath. They rise up. They thrust him out of the city they lead him to the brow of the hill upon which their city is built that they might cast him down headlong. You say, wait a second, what happened? Is the congregation at Nazareth kind of emotionally unstable? And they just like, you know, they have problems, you know, on either end of their emotions. They love you, but then they want to kill you all of a sudden. You know, what, what's, what's going on? Well, their response gives us a clear indication of who is Jesus. Because a good reader and the son of a carpenter isn't someone that you drive out of the city in order to kill. You see, they, they, they want to kill Jesus at the very beginning of his public ministry because when he tells them he is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, he does so in a way that pierces their very soul. And the way he pierces their very soul is he explains what it means not only for the day of Jubilee to have come, the acceptable year of the Lord, but he also explains, not by saying it, but an illustration what it means for the day of judgment to come. And, and, and I disagree with some of the commentators on this that have a different idea. But why didn't Jesus say all of what Isaiah wrote? That it's the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God. I think it's because Jesus was, was kind of like reading the crowd. And instead of just saying that, he illustrates it for them. And he begins with a parable. No prophet is without honor except in his own hometown. He says, I, I tell you, right? And, and, and this is in verse 23. You're going to say to me this proverb, physician, heal thyself. Whatever we heard that you've done at Capernaum, do here also in your country. Hey, Jesus, if you got all these magic powers and you're doing them down in Galilee... Why not come here and do them? And Jesus says, well, I'll tell you why. Because a prophet is not accepted in his, in his own hometown, in his own country. And then he further illustrates. He says, remember the widows in Israel in the day of, of Elijah when the heavens were shut for three years and six months and famine was spreading throughout all of the land and none of them received help from Elijah except one woman. That was a widow, and she was an outsider. She was a foreigner. And then he gives a second illustration. He says in verse 27, well, you remember the lepers in Israel in the days of Elisha? None of them were cleansed except Naaman, who was also what? An outsider. And this just lines up perfectly with what the larger meaning of Isaiah is for a people who are hearing 
the favorable year of the Lord, but being led into captivity. For when, God, or when Jesus comes into his own people, they are still in captivity. And he wants them to know that, yes, the favorable year of the Lord has come, but in order for me to get you out of captivity, the day of judgment is going to come. And their response to that is, we're going to kill you. We're going to kill you. You see, at the very moment that Jesus tells them that Isaiah 61 is fulfilled, you would have thought a hootenanny would have broken out, that everybody would have just started singing and rejoicing because as the psalmist wrote, in the presence of God is fullness of joy. But it didn't. Their hearts were hardened. Now remember, these are religious people. These are people faithful to the synagogue. If you put it in today's terms, they were in church every single week. They are scrupulous in all of the matters of the law. How did they miss Jesus? Who had lived among them at this point, 25 years, more? Grew up playing with their kids? Grew up in the synagogue? How is it that after he reads their deliverance, all that they can think about him is, wow, what a good reader. That's Joseph's son. That's the hardening of a heart in the midst of the sunlight that is all around them. And the same might be asked of us. For where two or three are gathered, Jesus is in our midst. But why are you still so ambivalent about him? Is there a hardening in your heart? Not because you don't know stuff, but because the knowledge you have doesn't pierce you. Have we forgotten who he is? So we have to keep asking this question, who is Jesus of Nazareth? C.S. Lewis asked that question in a collection of essays and letters written sometime between 1940 and 1963, called God in the Dock. In this case, the dock isn't referring to the place you might tie up your boat, uh, but a docket, the place where the attorneys come and argue their case before the judge waiting for a ruling. And Lewis's point is that humans, and this will be true of some in this room, that you think you've got God in your sights and you're judging him. And and that's how humanity views God. And Lewis is writing at a time, of course, when both England and America were highly religious. Highly religious. But Lewis would remind humanity that it is God. God is the one that has humanity in his sights. God is judging us. Let me just give you a quote. Lewis asked this question, what are we to make of Jesus Christ? This is a question which has, in a sense, a comic side. For the real question is not what are we to make of Christ, but what is he to make of us? The picture, and I love this illustration, the picture of a fly sitting, deciding what it is going to make of an elephant has comic elements about it. 
You get the illustration? Humanity, a fly, thinking it's going to make something of God. And then Lewis writes this. We may note in passing that Jesus was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who met him. He mainly produced three effects. Hatred, terror, adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. And isn't that the problem in the church? Mild approval. That was the initial response in Nazareth, but as Jesus exposes the condition of the hearts of the people in the synagogue, their approval turned to hatred. Their approval turned to hatred, and Luke minces no words as he describes the scene in church that day. Enraged people, intent on murdering a son in their hometown, The proverb becomes true in that room that a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. In each of Isaiah's songs of rejoicing, hope has been a dominant theme that that hope is rooted in the promise of God to come and save his people. And when that salvation comes, it arrives in the person and the work of Jesus. But eventually, the hatred in Nazareth becomes the hatred in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, what do they cry out? Crucify him. Crucify him. As in Nazareth, they thrust him out of the city. They go to the brow of the hill. Only this time, Jesus does not escape through the crowd because he is condemned not only by the Jewish high court but by the governing authorities of the Roman Empire. The day of God's judgment of his wrath has come and it will be fully absorbed by the sinless son of God, not Joseph's son, not someone who just reads well, but the son of God, the son of man. And as he's nailed to that wooden cross, and as he is lifted up in his suffering and shame, please, please, please understand God is not in the docket at that moment. You are. Right? I am. We are. This world is. For we all have sinned in the likeness of Adam's sin. And as the law says, the soul that sinneth will surely die. And as the decisive moment comes, Jesus cries from the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And as Jesus breathes his last breath, he gives himself over to death. The day of Jubilee arrives. The favorable year of the Lord is coming into full view. For Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him would be saved. And that salvation then secured three days later as Jesus walks out of the tomb, vindicated, alive. And if you with faith trust him for your salvation, your hope is secured. Your sins, my sins, our sins forgiven. And by his grace we become those oaks of righteousness 
dressed in the wedding garments and the robes of righteousness, not because of our righteousness, because of the righteousness of Christ given to us through faith in him. The year of Jubilee has come. And that is the way we get to an eternal hootenanny <laughs> where we have joy forever because the gospel isn't about improving ourselves. He doesn't ask us to make ourselves into oaks of righteousness. It is his work in us for us. The promise of an eternal spring, a people dressed in their wedding garments waiting for Jesus to return, it is the Lord God who will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. As I've thought about this sermon for many weeks now, my memories have been flooded with good thoughts of those times now so many years ago when in that tiny second-floor apartment filled with music, filled with food, and friendship. And those memories are as real in my mind today as if they happened this past week. And I think about the names of the men, how many of them gone with the Lord. I think about the names of the, the moms, the wives, some of them still alive like my own mom, and only maybe a few years to go by God's grace. But you know what concerns me most? the same concern I have for my own sons and family and the people in this room is how many of the kids that I played games with over these years have not stayed with Jesus. The mild approval they gave turned into a hatred of rejection of Jesus. What about you? What about me? What about us? The acceptable year of the Lord is here. The final day of judgment is coming. If you want to know with certainty that you're ready, don't ask, what do I make of Jesus? But instead ask, what has the Lord Jesus Christ made of you? Amen. Now, Father, as we have heard your word in so many ways this morning, in so many ways we've been called to rejoice, let us ask that piercing question. What have you made of us? Let us examine our hearts now in quietness, in preparation to receive the feast. And let us be honest, O Lord, ready to repent, ready to admit. And let us turn from our sloth and indolence towards you. And plead, O God, that our hearts would be stirred by your spirit at work now, that we might receive this table in a manner that's worthy of what it re represents, the full sacrifice of the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's be quiet before the Lord.
Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.